folks. Welcome to Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. Part of the Mile High Sports Podcast family, and I am excited for this podcast because there's plenty of content to really talk about. Uh, We've had a couple days off from Summer League action. I know that probably next game is probably the, the final game that Christian Brown, Peyton Watson, Ismail Kamigate... It's probably the final game that those guys will play, maybe uh, the second to last game. But you know that all of these guys, they start cycling through. Denver starts to play the other players within their rotation as Summer League kind of wears on. So uh, we're starting to kind of wind down through that process, I think. And now we sort of have to transition into the deep NBA offseason, and we're going to be I think in this stage where there's not going to be a lot of content to talk about over the course of these next few weeks. There might. Uh, We still have the Kevin Durant saga. We still have the Kyrie Irving saga. Like, There's still a lot of things, I think, to for the dominoes to kind of fall in NBA circles. And so that could drop at any time. But it also could continue to push on. We may not know when those things are going to wrap up. So in between now and then, there are a few things that I want to go over. This podcast, I'm going to be talking about the altitude dispute in the first segment. Some news came down about that today that I think needs to be discussed. We're going to talk about some of the league rule changes that popped up today, including news on an in-season tournament that is probably in the works, maybe for next season, as soon as, uh, yeah, as soon as next season, not next season, but 2023-24. That should be pretty interesting. And I'm actually pro- in-season tournament, and we can talk about why later. And then I asked for questions for a mailbag on my article on Mile High Sports that I'll be dropping on Wednesday morning. Didn't get to all of the questions, so I'm going to answer some of the kind of carryover questions in the third segment today. So it should be a lot of fun. But let's first talk about the Altitude Comcast dispute, because this thing, as everybody knows, it's gone on forever. We don't want to talk about it anymore. We don't want to have to continue to deal with this. It's unfortunate. We're at the stage where all Nuggets fans really want, all they care about is that the games are shown. And it just doesn't look like that's happening. There was a mediation, uh, a hearing that was held today, or I, I think it was either today or yesterday. And kind of the fallout from that is that no agreement was made feels like both parties are definitely uh, at odds with each other. Nobody's really giving up ground despite the statement by KSE that they were going to come to the table willing and trying to make a deal. I'm not sure if that's true because I'm not in the room. I don't want to speak for those guys because unfortunately there's no information that's really popping up from this. One of the stipulations from this mediation between KSE and Comcast is that while the mediation is going on, they cannot talk about it. They cannot talk about the terms, what's being discussed. So while this mediation is going on, we don't really know what the terms are going to be, unless it's leaked, unless there's something else that kind of gets out. Unfortunately, I don't think anything like that is going to happen because it just doesn't really in these situations. And I think fans are going to be held hostage at this stage. Here was the statement from Comcast spokeswoman Leslie Oliver, and this was from an article uh, put together by Kyle Fredrickson over at the Denver Post that I think everybody should read. So 
I got a lot of my information from there. Quote, We appreciate the court's efforts to facilitate these conversations. We are fans of the Avs, Nuggets, and Rapids, and we share the Colorado hockey fans' excitement around the Avs' amazing Stanley Cup win. We've presented options for some time to Altitude for how we could carry games without raising rates for all Comcast customers, and we continue to remain open to discussing or to continuing discussions with Altitude. So yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Here's what that means. Comcast is not budging. They have their terms. They have offered Altitude a deal. It does not feel like that deal is anywhere close to what Altitude KSE is really willing to do. And any potential wiggle room is not enough to really consummate a deal or get anywhere close. Like It sort of feels like the abs and the nuggets of KSE, everything, they were operating at a specific level for most of this time. And then the rug was kind of pulled out from under them after the deal expired at the end of the 2018 season. And there's just a lot to really unpack there because this is now three full years of this going on. We're entering year four at this stage. And there's a lot that fans, I think, can reasonably complain about with regard to KSE. And this is at the top of the list. It's not just like practice facilities and all of the details of paying for executives and things like that. This is the bare minimum. This is showing basketball games, showing hockey games, uh, Rapids games, soccer games. Like It's nobody's fault. Uh, not, it's not KSE's fault that this is the situation, but the fact is that there's been no serious effort made to finding an alternative solution. They haven't thought of anything as viable, and they really haven't tried anything different. There's been a lot of like, there's been a lot of very minor stuff that has happened, but there's been no game-changing alternative that Altitude has really presented in order to come up with a different way to view Nuggets games. You've had programs like Ivaca TV and uh, Direct TV that have popped up as local options for local fans. But 92% of cable subscribers in Colorado use Comcast. These are across 48 counties, according to Kyle Fredrickson. They haven't had access to these Nuggets games. 92%. That's incredible. That's so high. They've now missed two MVP seasons from Jokic and a Stanley Cup run from the Avs as a result. And to not have the foresight to fix this is inexcusable. Full stop. Like, there should no, there, there are not any punches being thrown by me here. This is inexcusable. And Nuggets fans have a right to absolutely be upset. Because this should be child's play in terms of being able to give fans the opportunity to see their team. Rates are continuing to go up. We just went through a pandemic. The only way at times for Nuggets fans to watch these games was to do so illegally because there was a time where the, like literally the arenas were empty. I was one of the only people that was in the arena where they had like a hundred people brought in as media and security in order to make sure that the games could be played. That was it. But Altitude should have known that this was coming. There was no foresight involved here. They didn't expect, I mean, maybe they expected 
this, but they clearly didn't do anything about it. They should have known that Comcast was squeezing these RSNs, these regional sports networks. Bally Sports, they didn't just pop up out of nowhere. They currently have broadcasts for 16 NBA teams, 14 MLB teams, and 12 NHL teams. They are a national broadcasting entity that has really started to change how games are broadcast. Very few regional sports networks are really operating at this stage. And this is potentially where it's also going for altitude, where they're going to have to change up what they do. Because the only legal alternatives right now are DirecTV and Ivaca TV. Ivaca is a sponsor for the DMVR show, of course, and I, of course, recommend everyone to convert there if they can. But unfortunately, at this stage, 92% of cable subscribers in Colorado use Comcast. That is how people watch their games. That is how they get access to TNT and ESPN. And so that's not changing for the Nuggets when they're on national TV. And fortunately, because they have the two-time MVP, and now Jamal Murray and Michael Porter are healthy and the Nuggets should be kind of within the spotlight there, I would expect the Nuggets to get about 18 to 20 national games. And that doesn't even include NBA TV. Although NBA TV is blocked out in Denver, so... It doesn't even really count. So like 18 to 20 national games. So at most you're talking about for these fans, you're talking about them watching 25% of the season. That's insanity. That's, That's so stupid. And this should not have been the situation. As for the long term ramifications, I just don't think that the Nuggets are ever going to be shown on Comcast again. Let me re let me restate that. I do not think the Nuggets are going to show up on Comcast ever again. And that is a problem for fans in the short term, but also in the long term. This is like the the corporate giant in this case. The new NBA TV deal, which is nationally related, that expires after the 2024-25 season. So I don't even really expect a solution to crop up over the next three years. Until that national TV deal expires and everything starts to kind of be revamped, and I think the way that teams are covered and broadcast is going to be revamped, until now and then, I suspect that KSE, Altitude, they might begin negotiating with some other providers, maybe uh, perhaps a long-term replacement for Comcast, but they just only really strike me as the innovative type. They haven't been doing this over the last three years. It clearly hasn't mattered enough to try to come up with a genuine solution to kind of bypass all of this nonsense that Comcast is having them jump through hoops for. But they just don't really strike me as the people that are going to lead sports into the Amazon market or the Hulu market, which I think make the most sense, especially locally. But we're just going to have to figure out how these Nuggets games are going to be broadcast because I don't see a solution popping up over the next three years, which means the Nuggets fans are probably going to be in the same situation for the next three years. It's sad. It's very disappointing. I frown upon pretty much everybody that has been involved in these negotiations, whether it's Comcast for really strong-arming this regional sports network or if it's KSE for not being 
not smart enough, but like not having enough foresight to head this off at the pass. This could have been solved back in the 2019-20 season, 2018-19 season. These things could have been changed, and they didn't. Which, the only real loser here is Nuggets fans. You would think that KSC would be more upset about this and that they would actually try to come up with an alternate solution. But there's no solution coming. That's just not how this is going to go. Josh Kroenke talked to Nuggets Media back in June or whenever he did. I think it was early June. And he talked about how they were losing like millions of dollars in this case, like tens of millions of dollars because of this dispute. And that they felt Nuggets fans' pain because of how much money they were losing. That's crap. Like, honestly, they're printing money because of the Rams right now. They're printing money because of Arsenal right now. This is not how this works. You either put the games on TV or you don't. That's it. Come up with another solution. This this should not be this hard. And yet it has been dragging its feet for over three years, and the end is not in sight. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about more positive things, like rule changes in the NBA. But first, summer is here, and there's no better time to make your first bet with Superbook Sports. Along with its usual vast betting menu, Superbook already has a lineup for every pro football game this fall. Plus, when you make your first deposit on the Superbook app or sign up at Superbook.com, they will match 100% of your money up to $500. It's never too early to start thinking about football at Superbook Sports. Place your bet and start winning today. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. We'll be right back on Pickaxe and Roll. Jackson Roll, Ryan Blackman here. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Let's talk about a couple of the rule changes that have kind of gone into place or at least have been discussed by the NBA League office and everybody that kind of is involved with that process. So Shams and Woach, they both have been tweeting out and sharing some of the league stuff that has popped up over the course of the last few days. One of those things is the take foul. Now it includes one free throw and the ball. So when a a take foul is incurred, that player will take one free throw and then the ball will be given to that team. It is the right call to be able to do something like that. And and Nikola Jokic is in shambles at this because, man, he he loves to give the take foul, as many people love to, to mention. And it's when he takes, when he has a turnover. LeBron James does this. Every point guard does this, like Luka Doncic will do this as well. So this is really a rule that is made to kind of up the pace of the game because the worst thing that a date for the entertainment side of this, the worst thing that a team can do, a player can do is stop a fast break from happening because you have these super athletes right now like John Morant, Zion Williamson, Giannis, 
uh, Steph on the fast break when he gets to the three-point line or even well behind it. All of these opportunities for highlights in transition, they go away when the take fouls is given. So now you incentivize teams to not take foul, to get back in transition instead. And that gives them an opportunity to, I think, up the pace of the game as well as create some more highlights and create some more fun parts of basketball. It's better to watch transition basketball than it is to just watch people walk up the court after a take foul is given. So this is great. Nikola Jokic, I joke about it, but he actually is a guy that is kind of hurt by this, I think, because this emphasizes the the faster pace nature of the game. And for a player, let's say it's Jokic, who kind of he captains the the defense from the top of the three-point line a lot of times. If a turnover happens or a runout happens, he's going to have to get back in transition now. He's going to have to stop a transition break. And he's not very good at that. Like, let's be honest, sometimes he does. And he actually has some surprising moments on occasion. But for the most part, teams will take advantage of him when it's a two-on-one or a three-on-one opportunity. And he kind of is helpless in some of those situations. So he's a guy that I think is hurt more by this than most. And not to mention it's just because he likes to give the take foul. So Maybe it actually helps him. Maybe it keeps him out of foul trouble in this case, though I do think it's still likely that he commits fouls in transition as a result. But the guys who I think benefit the most from this are KCP, Bruce Brown, Bones Highland, and Christian Brown. These are the guys that are turnover generators on defense. They jump passing lanes. They like to get involved by getting out in transition moving up and down the court. They make some highlight plays, but more than anything, it's it's the pick six kind of guys. They're the ones that grab the ball and then they're often stopped in transition by a take foul. Now that's not even possible. And so as long as they can avoid that, they have opportunities to potentially make some highlights, which would be fun for the Nuggets. Now, I like the take foul. Or no, no, no. I, I like this rule that kind of eliminates the take foul. Because even though it might hurt Jokic, even though it might change some aspects of the game, like the Nuggets were one of the teams that offers take fouls at the highest rate, I think it's better for them just to practice more when it comes to uh, getting up and down in transition. And, and maybe this incentivizes them to get up and down in transition. But it also incentivizes them to get back on defense and to make sure they are as alert and focused on that end as possible from an early part of the shot clock. That's a really, really important piece, I think. Now, the in-season tournament, this was also discussed, uh, and it appears to be a serious thing. Here's the explanation that Shams gave. Basically, all 30 NBA teams will compete. The top eight teams will advance from the pool play stage. I I put in pool play because that's really what it is. Top eight teams advance, and then the final four teams will they each win their game, whichever against whichever matchup they have, and then they will come together to play at a neutral site. And they will have, I assume, three games, two semifinal games and a final game at that neutral site, kind of like the final four. Now, the logistics here, not great. 
for a neutral site, it's, it's going to be rough. So what I do think is going to have to happen is it's probably an agreed upon location before the tournament. Maybe this is something that's on a rotating basis. Maybe it's something that's kind of uh, planned throughout so that you're making sure to have a, a host for some of these events as much as a, like, or as little as a year in advance and as far as maybe three to four years in advance. I don't know. We're going to have to see, but I do think it probably has to be agreed upon before the tournament. And for example, let's say it's Chase Center and let's say the Warriors make it to the final four. It's still going to be held there, which means that the Warriors in that case would probably get a nice home court advantage, even though it's supposed to be on a neutral site. It's like if the final four would be held in, I don't know, Staples Center. And then UCLA made it to the Final Four. That's just sort of how it works. And it's it's unfortunate for that particular team that has to face UCLA. But it's probably good for the league. And it's probably going to happen 2023-24 at the earliest. So not this year, but next year. I like the idea of the in-season tournament. I don't love it. That's not... I don't think it's crazy to dislike it, but I do like it. I think it's a good thing for the NBA. What I will say up front is that 82 games plus the in-season tournament is too long. It's too long of a regular season period. Players are not going to go for it. It's never going to fly. Uh, I would say that like owners would love it. They're not going to get it. NBA won't agree to it. They probably want the schedule shortened even more than that. So I do think that it needs to be clarified there. And that if the in-season tournament happens, then you're probably getting a reduction in the regular season schedule. But I do think that if that gives players enough rest where they're less likely to do a whole bunch of load management during the season, then I'm all for it. It also makes each of the individual regular season games just that much more valuable if they play 72 games versus 82. It means you have to take each game seriously, or at least more of them. I think there's an aversion to the in-season tournament right now. And I think it comes from folks kind of wondering, why do, what does this matter? Like, why should I care about this? Why should the players care about this? And I kind of get it. I do understand that it's 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 just this new thing. Like you're you're just gonna have this pop up. Like, what's the incentive? Why should players want this? And it's gonna be difficult to feel that you should care until your team is minutes away from clinching the title, from clinching the championship, the tourney final. Imagine Nikola Jokic and the Nuggets are playing Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks. You don't think that's a point of viewing? In the in-season tourney final, you don't think that everybody would tune into that game? A winner-take-all game? People aren't going to care for that? Come on now. Everybody would love that. That would be incredible. If it's Sacramento versus Indiana, that might be different. But I do think that if you get some premier matchups in this thing, then it's going to be really, really interesting. What if it's Jokic versus Embiid? What if it's a Nuggets-Suns rematch where... So much trash has been talked between those two teams. I think it just creates another thing for people to care about. And that's a good thing. People should want to care about basketball. They should want to be caring about basketball being played. 
I, for one, do not care about the January schedule that would be replaced by an in-season tournament. I would care about the in-season tournament. I think that for players, for teams, I do think it's a good thing. It gives them another thing to compete for. It gives them another thing that even if they might not be a championship caliber team, you go on a run and you absolutely can win this thing. It's just like six or eight games. Like You can go on a run, there's no doubt. For players and teams that don't really care as much, that's fine. It's an opportunity for some extra rest. Some teams will do that. They'll, they'll use it as an opportunity to get rested for the rest of the regular season. And here's the thing, only eight teams compete. So you're probably going to get some extra rest anyway. Probably going to get like a full week off because they're not going to want to play those three other games, the uh, quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. They're not going to want to play all of those back to back to back. You're probably getting a full week off anyway because of the in-season tournament. So I do think that there will be needed, I think some added incentives will probably need to happen. Like I personally like guaranteeing at least the sixth seed for that year's playoffs, which the reason for that is because of the play-in tournament. You get the the seven through 10 seeds are in the play-in. If you get a top six seed and you guarantee that because of this tournament, imagine what some of these teams would do in order to try to get something like that. Sacramento, Portland, New York, Atlanta. Some of these teams that are kind of on the fringe that are in that play-in tier or, or below it, they would love to be able to get to that threshold because it guarantees that you play none of the top two seeds in the West or the East either. That's a great thing for a team that's hoping to go on a run. It's hoping to play some games. It would also be great insurance for a really good team just in case they sustain a major midseason injury. Let's say it's the Nuggets. Let's say Michael Porter Jr. Let's say he has to sit out for a full two months going from January to March. And as a result, the Nuggets lose home court advantage. I don't think it would come to that, but what if it was Jokic? Like, what if they go from a one seed to a seven seed? But they won the in-season tournament, so they're guaranteed already to be in the playoffs. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a I'm pro in-season tournament at this, at this stage. I think if you go 72 regular season games, you cut off 10 regular season games for each team. Then you play four to five guaranteed tourney games. So you're going to get 76 to 77 right there. And then a max of three elimination games between the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. That means the max a team will play is 80 games during a season. And I think that that is a better reduction for the league. I think given how difficult it is, to play in the NBA today, given how physically taxing it is and how most of the regular season is a war of attrition anyway, finding additional opportunities for rest, finding additional opportunities to improve the regular season product is a good thing. And I think that the NBA is right to consider something like this. I really do. Let's take another break. When we come back, we are going to go over some other mailbag questions. I've got some good ones here. 
We'll be right back. added final segment pickaxe and roll thank you so much everybody for tuning in let's wrap up this podcast by going over i'm gonna go five questions here i think i'm answering eight on the mailbag uh on mile high sports on wednesday you should go read that those are the prime questions that i wanted to make sure to answer in written format make sure to go check those out but for some of the honorable mentions i wanted to answer some of these questions in this final segment, I think there was, there was just a good carryover for some good content, and I thought it would make some good conversation. So, Warren Mayhem, he asks, has any NBA fan base ever displayed more collective angst over the signing of a backup center? <laughs> and, I mean, you're, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right that the Nuggets signing DeAndre Jordan has definitely not gone over well in terms of the overall pushback that has sort of appeared. I'm not really surprised because I've watched DeAndre Jordan over the course of the last four or five years really devolve into a player that I don't think deserves to play NBA minutes right now. And so I'm not really surprised that fans have kind of reacted in this way because we've seen it, right? We saw with the Lakers at the beginning of last season, the Sixers, he, uh, DeAndre Jordan, was not an impact player in any of those situations, but he was good in the locker room. And so I think that's something that has really popped up over the course of these last couple of days, last week or so maybe. He was brought in not necessarily to play. He was brought in as a good locker room guy, somebody who's going to tie the room together, who can play in a pinch if the Nuggets need him to. But for the most part, he is going to be a veteran presence on a team that I think needs it. DeAndre Jordan isn't necessarily here to play. I do think he will help players like Michael Porter Jr., like Zeke Naji, guys that are bigger but don't necessarily play big all the time. He strikes me as a guy who can help them in those situations as, as more of a veteran influence and somebody that should be good for the locker room as opposed to somebody who's definitely absolutely going to play. He might not. Like there's definitely a possibility that he that he does, but there's also a sincere possibility that he doesn't. So I think the people definitely overreacted. There was a lot of angst, but this also could be changed during the regular season. Darkcast, he asks, how do you see the first few games of the season going with easing back in Mike and Jamal, and trying to find new chemistry? Great question. I don't really have a great answer because it's just, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to figure out. They've played a season together, or at least the majority of a couple seasons together, where for one of those, Mike was coming off the bench. For another, Mike was starting. And they, they played a lot of games together during the 2021 season. That was Jokic's first MVP year. He was still the number one. Murray was the clear number two. MPJ, the clear number three. I do think it's still going to be like that. But there are going to be some times where the Nuggets are going to have to call some plays and they're going to try to get everybody involved. But for the most part, I do think that the Nuggets should still be a free-flow offense where 
they'll have Porter run some design stuff, but a lot of it's going to be concept-based. A lot of it's going to be interchangeable, where Jokic is kind of running some actions as the quarterback of the action at the top, where maybe Porter is screening, or Murray is screening, or Gordon is screening, and they're going to try to get these guys open as often as possible. We're just going to have to see how it works. I I don't think it's going to be a problem. I can't imagine that it's going to be a problem. Everybody just wants to be healthy. Everybody just wants to be on the court and playing. I have to imagine that it's going to feel good and not necessarily bad to get back out on the court. And I don't think there's going to be this real push and pull or anything like that. There will be some times where they try to find their rhythm and it might come at the expense of some wins. But I have to imagine that it's going to be just fine. Jokic is still stirring the drink, so should be okay. Voyer Dyer, he asks, Have your thoughts on Tim Connolly leaving changed at all given the Nuggets' offseason moves? And where do you stand on the Gobert trade? Now, it's funny. There's been a lot of discussion on the the Nuggets' uh, Twitter side of things where uh, they actually – made the right change and they have the right executive because of the wings that uh, that Calvin Booth brought in with Contavious Caldwell Pope, Bruce Brown, Christian Brown, Peyton Watson, guys like that. They've really gone full wing. They've wanted to bring in some of these guys in order to get better on that front. And for a while, Tim Connolly, his weakest position was wing. He really struggled. He wanted so badly for Will Barton to work out in a lot of cases that I think he had a little bit of a blind spot there. And that's fine. Like, everybody has their blind spots. And I think Calvin's probably going to have his blind spots too. We're just not going to know what they are yet until that actually comes around. Like, maybe he holds on to Peyton Watson too long if Peyton Watson doesn't necessarily work out. But I do think that Tim... He was close to trading for Contavious Caldwell-Pope at the deadline. Like, that was possible. That was very close. It would have been a Will Barton for KCP swap. That's pretty standard. And I'm not really surprised that they potentially went that route. They didn't actually end up going that direction. Or at least it didn't kind of wrap up. And I think one of the reasons for that was because it didn't necessarily look like Murray and Porter were going to get back. Or maybe they did think they were going to get back. That's why they didn't make the move. I still think that it's it's funny, right? Like one of the things that Nuggets fans really wanted to see was the Nuggets making aggressive moves. And they did. They added Bruce Brown. I do think that's somebody that Tim Connolly would have tried to get to. They traded Monte Morris and Will Barton for KCP and Ish Smith. Something they would have done. Would Tim Connolly have drafted Christian Brown? I don't know. Would he have drafted Peyton Watson? Maybe. Probably, actually. Would he have drafted Christian Brown as opposed to, let's say, Jaden Hardy? I don't know. So, it's hard for me to say because Tim Connolly just made the most aggressive move of the offseason where he traded everything to get Rudy Gobert to Minnesota. Tim is willing to take chances. Like It's never been about that with him. They drafted Michael Porter Jr. They traded down in the 2017 draft only to have that kind of blow up in their face. They've taken some chances on some guys over the years, though it's mostly been 
stable. And I think that Tim kind of wrongly was given the impression that he's just extremely safe to the point of like, like sometimes he will be too safe, but there are other times where he was rightfully aggressive. And, and I do firmly believe that. So has my stance on him changing uh, on him leaving changed? Not really. Like, I still think that you want all of your people in the building. And I still think that it just adds that potential layer of instability that could potentially come through. Now, I didn't know just how much trust Calvin Booth had within the organization. Like, everybody loves Calvin. It's pretty clear that they believe in him. And so maybe that's a different perspective. And that's fine. Two more questions. Dre asks, do you believe the Nuggets could make any moves midseason? If so, what are the possibilities? So Denver doesn't have a lot to offer. They don't, they just don't. And that's fine. They've they've brought in the guys that they want to bring in. They have their top seven or so that they believe in, the starters plus Bones Highland and Bruce Brown. And that will probably be good enough to get them a top three seed. That would be my guess. Now, they might need a midseason move to add a backup center. They might need a midseason move to uh, solidify their backup wing spot. Maybe they need another shooter. Maybe Zeke Nagy is, is playing well at the five, but they need somebody else at the four in place of Jeff Green. If it's not Vlatko, then I don't really know who it is. So they might look for another forward. Uh, maybe it's to replace Michael Porter Jr. if he goes down with an injury. I don't know. I do think that they have flexibility in order to do that. Oh, and by the way, they could also look for a backup point guard just in case they want to move Bones Highland back off ball, which is possible. So could they make a midseason move? Do I believe that they could? Yes. If so, what are the possibilities? Uh, some of the positions that I just outlined, but they have the traded player exception that they got from uh, the Will Barton trade. It's about $14 million. They can absorb anybody into that if they like. Most likely, though, they would trade some matching salary, in which case they don't really have much. Uh, Bruce Brown is their their biggest kind of matching. Actually, KCP is their biggest matching salary, but I think he's pretty necessary to what they believe their title hopes are going to be. So if you don't trade anybody from your top seven, which includes Bones Highland and Bruce Brown, then your largest matching salary at that point is Jeff Green, who I think makes $4.5 million. So Denver can do some stuff, but nothing major. They have the flexibility, like they have a 2029 first round pick. They've got a second, a couple seconds that they can throw out there. But what they're going to do in all likelihood, if they do anything, is a small move that kind of gets them an eighth man for a playoff rotation, a ninth man for a playoff rotation, something like that. Nothing major, but potentially something that kind of ties the roster together. And finally, Sinad uh, Lechevich. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. He asks, can Bones Highland be the backup point guard in a deep postseason run? How comfortable do you feel about Zeke Najee and Jeff Green as the backup four and five in the playoffs? So we're at the bench. And you're right. Like There are some question marks. Can Bones Highland be the backup point guard? Yes, absolutely. Jordan Poole was the backup point guard for the Warriors in their postseason run, and they won a title. 
He wasn't perfect all the time. He wasn't absolutely necessary all the time. But Bones Highland doesn't have to be either. He just has to give them some minutes. And he absolutely can do that. Will he? It's a little bit tougher. Like, he still has some room to grow defensively. He still has some room to grow kind of leading the team, being responsible for the team in those situations. I do think that he, I think, lost a little bit in terms of his assertiveness in the postseason. Maybe that was just being a rookie, being in his second year this year. I think that'll probably change it. I could see him having a Tyrese Maxey kind of leap or a Jordan Poole kind of leap. Something like that where he just becomes a different player and we think of him as a different player. And if that's the case, and if he does that, then yeah, absolutely. He could be that in a deep postseason run. How comfortable do I feel that Zeke Naji and Jeff Green can be the backup four and five? I feel pretty good about Zeke. And I actually feel reasonably good about Jeff Green too. They're not like perfect in any stretch. Like, I do think that they have weaknesses, rebounding being the biggest weakness. But what I do think for those guys specifically is that with as switchable as teams need to be in a playoff environment, Zeke Naji is a guy who can really do that. He's not going to be elite as a switch defender, but he can be really, really good switching onto guards, switching onto wings. And he can battle with bigs. It's just about winning the battle versus losing it more often than not. So we're going to see whether he can do that. Jeff Green was overextended in this last playoff run. He had played over 2,000 minutes at age 35. That was a bad idea. Now he is likely to play 15 minutes per game as the backup. And sometimes he won't even play. Like maybe Vlatko will have a game or maybe... Uh, DeAndre Jordan will have a game of the slide Zeke Naji to the four. For the most part, though, I think that Jeff can definitely play 15 to 20 minutes as a backup. Like, he doesn't have to do too much. All he has to do is kind of stabilize things, run some occasional pick and roll, be a good switch defender and kind of complete his assignments and help everybody else complete theirs. And that's fine. That's good enough. Is it going to be a matchup advantage for Denver? Probably not. If Zeke Naji continues to develop, it might be. But we don't know. We just don't know. And we're going to have to wait and see. But for now, that is going to do for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate all the love and support, as always. If you can, it'd be awesome if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I will be back... Uh, either on Friday or Saturday. I haven't decided. The Nuggets are going to play on Wednesday night. Probably won't podcast after that, but I will podcast after the next two games. And we'll just have to see how they go. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Talk to you guys very soon.